everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chandelier Chats. I'm your host, Rochelle LaCour. Today, we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Terry Kozlowski. She is an author, a life coach, and a podcast host. And today, we're going to be talking about transcending fear. So please join me in welcoming to the show, Terry Kozlowski. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Thank you very much, Rochelle, for having me on your show. Oh, you're so welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you here. So Terry, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what got you into being an author, a life coach, and a podcast host? It all stems back to a childhood traumatic experience. Um, I would not have written the book had I not been inspired. I would not have done the podcast had my son not encouraged me that other, there's a different set of people I wasn't reaching through my blog. So that's what started the uh, podcast. So my childhood trauma all stems back to a fateful trip to visit my mother. My parents were divorced when I was eight. My dad got custody of my sister and I, which was unheard of in the early 70s for a man to get custody of two small girls. He was the first in the state of Maryland to do so. I found out later that my mother abandoned us during that because she never showed up to the hearing. So that's how my dad got custody of us. And then my mother hadn't seen, didn't see my mother for a couple of years. And she faithfully came through Pennsylvania while on her way to move to New Mexico. And a couple of years later, she asked my dad if my sister and I could come for a visit. Now at this point in life, I'm 11. My sister is nine months younger than I am. She's 10. And we haven't seen my mother in a couple of years. And she and my dad divorced because she was an alcoholic and she decided to go on her separate way on her own journey. And she promised that she was in AA and she was quoting the steps and convinced my dad that it was okay. My sister and I were really glad because we wanted to see my mother. You know, when you're talking about two small girls not seeing their mother, but one time from between the ages of eight and 11, that's a lot for a young girl to, to not have any contact with her mother except phone calls so we went out for the trip and the first two weeks are fabulous we were supposed to be there for six weeks after about week two things started changing because she started drinking as all alcoholics do um, especially when they're not truly committed to their recovery she was committed enough to get us there not committed enough to stay sober while we were there and after the um she started partying and all the codependency traits that I had already created before the divorce all kicked in. So prior to the divorce, I was, my mother would pass out. I'd clean up her drink. I'd clean up her vomit because I didn't want her to get in trouble with my dad when he came home from work. So these are the things that I carried into. Now I'm 11. Now I'm playing a hostess. I am passing Uh out drinks for every drink I passed out. I dumped one. So I was, you know, in my mind, contributing less to the amount of alcohol that was being um, passed around. So these parties turned into what we didn't know is that my mother was also now a drug addict. So uh-huh. she was taking drugs. They, one fateful night, they drugged my sister and she slept for three days. And over the course of three days, I put my little head on her chest and listening to her heartbeat, watching her chest rise and fall. I don't know, I shouldn't know at age 11 how to take a pulse, but I am, you know, putting my little hand there and seeing that, feeling her, that she does have a pulse. And she slept for three days and woke up groggy and very hungry. But 
what happened that night that they drugged her was my mother allowed three men to sexually molest me so she could get drugs while she stood in the room with her best friend and watched. So then she disappears for three days. So that's the next abandonment that occurred is that I'm left alone with my sister. We are 3000 miles away from a home, which is in Pennsylvania in New Mexico, really don't know anybody, but who my mother has introduced us to and I'm figuring out how to take care of my sister with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and cereal and milk and a little bit of what's left in the refrigerator. And after my sister wakes up, my mother reappears and she sends us off to the grocery store uh, and her paycheck. And at the age of 11, I am cashing her check, buying groceries, getting a money order to pay for the efficiency apartment she lives in, weekly rent. And we go back to the house with the groceries, um, give my mother the groceries and go pay the rent. And when we come back to the door, my mother has our suitcases sitting out on the front stoop. And she says to us, it's time for us to go home. She closes the door and locks it. That's the third abandonment that she did. Literally, we are left on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, not in a good part of town. Uh, We walk a mile with suitcases. Can you imagine watching two little girls walk the streets of a big city and nobody says anything to them while they walk for a mile? That was... That was what it was like in the early 80s. And obviously it was, must have been normal in this neighborhood because no one stopped us. No one asked us any questions. We, I make a phone call to get to, you know, for my dad, tell him we have to come home. Now, I don't tell him that we were kicked out. I don't tell him about the rape. I don't tell him about my sister being drugged. I just said, we need to come home. We need to come home now. And the next day we're on an airplane and... I get off the airplane to my dad and my tell my dad that I need therapy. Again, I'm 11. I shouldn't know what therapy is. I'm aware enough to know that something bad has happened and I can't handle it and mm-hmm. I need help. Mm-hmm. And so I go through therapy till I'm 18. <laughs> um, and over the course of my life, the reason the book came to be was I had always been asked to write my story from the time I was, I think 21 was the first time somebody asked for me about writing my book. And I said, not only no, but hell no, it was not something I wanted to do. (laughs) Then in the summer of 2018, which was right before I turned 50, I became pregnant with a book. And nine months later, I had the rough draft of Raven Transcending Fear. The title came to me that I named the baby before it was born. I had a poem written about it that ended up being the six, their stanzas for six stanzas at the beginning of each of the six chapters that talk about those, what was going through my little mind at the time. And, you know, a couple more edits, several more edits. I finally got a publishing contract and the book came out on February 12th, Lunar New Year which is significant for me, especially with the Raven, because the Raven and the um, Tinglet tribe, which is I'm Native American, which is where the symbolism come from. So I'm a Raven clan, um, talks about the Raven um, stealing the sun and bringing light to the earth, which is what the whole point of the Raven is, is that, Mm -hmm. and my story is I want to bring light to those people who are still in the darkness. I want to be able to help them transcend their fear, go from a place of, 
of what many of us think is death of who we authentically are and to into a rebirth of understanding that who we authentically are never went away, who we authentically are never was harmed, who we authentically are is still there. It just got buried. Wow. That is an incredibly, incredibly powerful story, Terry. Thank you. Incredibly powerful. Thank you so much for sharing. So how does writing this book tie into your life as a life coach? How does that support your podcasting that you do? So writing the book, I'm a researcher at heart. And before I do anything, I have to figure out what it is I'm doing and what and the path I need to take. So I planned that all out. And the book, when I started researching how to write a book, how to publish a book, it became very obvious that I needed to create what they called a writer's and author's platform. And an author's platform is very simple. It's a website that you blog on. And it's then making sure you have your social media accounts and that they all match and all that good stuff. So as I'm writing the book, I'm setting up a website, January 1st, 2019, my first blog aired, which was, happened to be on a Tuesday. And I've been blogging weekly ever since then on Tuesday, a blog post comes out. My son in, um, last year during COVID, when everybody was staying at home and sheltering in place, mentioned to me that I should have a podcast because he listens to podcasts and he doesn't read anything. <laughs> and he said, <laughs> my audience is bigger than I think it is. It's not just people a little bit younger than me. It's not just people my age or 10 years younger than me that my message is really a universal message, but that if I had a podcast, I would reach a younger audience. And the universe spoke, it showed up that I was a podcast challenge, I took it, I took a course. And on August 1st, uh, 2020, I launched my podcast. And I'm just about today to record my 50th episode. Wow. And it airs every um, Tuesday as well. So Tuesday is the big change in the weekday for me. And um, it does reach a completely different audience than the blog does, and which I find interesting because it's a younger audience. I would say they're in their um, early 30s and they're educated, which I also found a little more interesting because a lot of times people who are suffering through trauma tend not to be able to rise over certain circumstances. So um, I was pleased to see that um, we are gaining more skills, um, at, even though the amount of trauma in the world is still increasing, which is sad to say. And the other thing that I found interesting was my audience is also has more males in it than I anticipated, um, which is another happy yet sad statistic, because that also means that men are suffering and they're suffering mm -hmm. in silence. And mm -hmm. um, so the whole idea of the podcast is to give you about 10 to 15 minutes of a little antidote about me, as well as takeaway steps that you can implement into your life to help you transcend fears or whatever topic we're just, I happen to be discussing that week. Wow, that's amazing. And can you talk a little bit more about transcending fear? What does that mean? What does it mean to transcend fear? I believe there are only two emotions, love and fear. And we either respond to life from a place of love or react to it out of a place of fear. And when we consciously choose to respond, we automatically transcend the fear. 
And the raven um, is really about a symbol about overcoming the, the earthly aspects and transcending to a spiritual aspect. A lot of times ravens have negative connotation because they're around death. And what people don't realize is that's a symbolism from the Bible, from the Quran, from uh, all kinds of Celtic traditions, all the way back to Greek and Roman traditions, where the raven is actually taking the spirit from the earthly plane into the spiritual realm. So it's a transcending experience. And that is really what we need to do with our egoic mind. We need to transcend the egoic mind. The ego, everybody has one. And it's meant for a really good purpose. It's meant to help protect us from things that happened to us in the past. The issue is in our evolution, when a tiger is in, tromping through the woods and there's, the, ah, there's a tiger, we're supposed to run away. But in modern days, we don't have those types of life and death situations. We have, oh, Jim and, and at work talks badly about us. I don't want to go into the next meeting with Jim. Yeah, that is not a life and death situation, but the ego needs something to hold on to. But for those of us that actually have trauma, the ego holds on even tighter to those things that caused us pain. So for example, my three, the three rapists were Hispanic men. And so all through my teenage years, and especially when I got to college and I started seeing more Hispanic people, I had a lot of angst within me about these Hispanic people. Now, my ego was doing what it was meant to do. Hey, watch out. There's a Hispanic person there. You need to be careful. But over time, that's, that's how prejudices grow. That's how we decide that a whole race of people is bad because of one experience we've had. Mm -hmm. So what I've learned to do is I've reframed that. I've had more positive experience with Hispanic men than negative. I've had one negative experience. Yes, it was really traumatic. And yes, it really altered who I was at the time. But that doesn't mean that all my other relationships with Hispanic men have to be bad. They can be very mm -hmm. positive. And that is where the reframing comes in. That's where the transcending of the egoic mind and reframing that story that I've had that the ego brings to the surface. <gasps> There's a Hispanic man. No, thank you very much for pointing that out. I've had more positive experiences than negative experiences. And when you actually tell the ego that, all that fear dissipates. And now when I see Hispanic man, it's very, very rare that some that my ego says anything because I now have gotten it to understand that Hispanic men aren't fearful. Mm -hmm. I think it's also really incredible that at that tender age of 11 years old, you were able to not only look after your sister, but you were looking after yourself and you were able to recognize, hey, I need help because most, most people, even adults don't even recognize that they need help. So can you speak a little bit more about that? Where do you think that wisdom came from? I believe that we all come to the planet very aware. We know exactly who we are. We know we have a mission and a plan for our lives and we have a purpose. And yet we come into this world knowing all that and we get introduced to an unknown, which we call family. And that family can be both positive and negative. And I had both positive and negative experiences within my family. We all do. I, however, had that traumatic experience with my mother. 
And because of that, it doesn't mean that our awareness of who we authentically are goes away. It doesn't mean that as we're going through things, we don't see spirit or the universe or whatever you want to call it, dropping in and saying, here's help. So a really good example of that is when we went, when we got to New Mexico, my mother came to the, um, to pick us up and the person that came with her, his name was Alan, have no idea who his his last name is. I know he's Alan. I know he had cowboy boots and a cowboy hat on. And I thought that was really cool. Being 11, cowboy hat was awesome. He worked at Los Alamos, that I much I knew, uh, as a nuclear physicist, which I thought, how did my mother end up with this person? And what I ended up, he gave me his business card. And normally, I'm 11. And he said to me, if you need anything, anything, call me. And I, th- and I said, thank you. And I realized as I'm looking at this business card, I'm so, this is something important. And I hold on to it. Interestingly enough, when I made that phone call to my dad and said, I have to, we have to come home. He asked me if I had a ride to the airport and where I was, there was nobody that owned a car. And I remembered that business card. I said, yes, I have. I, I didn't even call this man. Yes, I have a ride. Get me to the airport. Mm-hmm. Get me a ticket. I hung up with my dad and I called Alan. I told him that my mom kicked us out and I needed a ride to the airport. And I got the address of where we were, gave it to him. He said, what time do you need me to pick you up? I told him and he said, I'll be there. And by God, was he there the next morning? Those are the things that the universe puts in place that you don't think of at the time. And I certainly didn't think of as an 11 year old. It's just how it all flowed together. When I needed to remember Alan, I remembered him. Never seen, never heard from that man again, but there is not a time that I don't tell my story that I'm not thankful that Alan showed up when he did. And it's putting those pieces together and realizing that when we look back at our lives, we're never alone. We always think we're alone. We're never really alone because there are those people. There are, there is that spirit realm that is always with us, pointing us and guiding us. If we get quiet enough to listen, and that's the key. Most of us, especially those of us caught in trauma that have the egoic mind, monkey mind going all all the time, we don't get quiet. Mm -hmm. And what, Without getting quiet, we can't hear the whispers of our soul. Our soul does not scream at us the way the ego does. Our soul is very quiet. Mm -hmm. It's very unassuming. It says, hey, try this. Ooh, that's a good idea. But that's all it does. It's those gut instincts, those natural responses, the things that all of a sudden excite us. And then our ego tells us, oh, that's a dumb idea. And then we get all slouchy and, you know, don't do it. But when we get inspired... That's our soul speaking to us and we need to take heed and we need to listen. So I believe we all come to our school aware and yet as we go through life, we shut that down. And when we go through what I call the domestication process, we, we have our parents who tell, tell us we have to be a certain way, we have to act a certain way, we have to be good girls, good boys. And then we have peer pressure because our friends, oh, our friends are doing this. So we need to do this. And Mm -hmm. we go through all of that and we conform 
So when we're when we get to be 20 and we're out of college, we've now conformed to what society thinks we should be. And then we spend several years, decades, maybe, <laughs> um, wondering why we're miserable. Well, we're miserable because we're not being our authentic selves. And then, of course, you hit midlife. And that's what all those midlife crises are, is really us coming back to, I want to be my authentic self. Now, when you are a teenager, when you are in your 20s, when you are getting married, when you are you know, raising kids, and you ask anybody in your life, do you want me to be what you want me to be, or do you want me to be authentic? They will all tell you they want you to be authentic. They don't want you to put on a face. They don't want you to wear a mask. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to, to be a label. They want you to be authentically you. Mm -hmm. And yet we all hide our authentic selves from everybody else. And that's right. what- Why do we hide our authentic selves? Because the ego tells us that in the past, if we were authentic selves, people wouldn't like us. Otherwise, our friends in high school would have liked us when we didn't want to be a cheerleader. And yet we went out for cheerleading just because everybody else is going out for cheerleading. Mm -hmm. We had no desire to be a cheerleader and thank heavens we didn't become a cheerleader. But you know, we went through all that process to be accepted, to conform to what society wants us to be. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, if you are your authentic self, really think about those people in your life that you know are completely authentically themselves. You absolutely love the fact that they're that way. You mm -hmm. love their quirks and their flaws and their personality, the way they handle things that are so different than yours. It gives you a different perspective for you to see life through. And that's always a benefit is being able to have different perspective to the same situation. I think that that's absolutely amazing that you shared that because especially with everything that's going on right now, there's a lot of light being shone on the places that we haven't wanted to look at. We haven't mm -hmm. wanted to address, you know, unprocessed, unintegrated trauma is, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of a prevalent thing in our society. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that would rather ignore the signs and they would rather ignore their trauma than actually process it. And I'm curious, what did you notice shifted the most when you started to work through that trauma? The biggest shift occurred when I was in college and I am one of those people that always was up front. I have, I have trauma in my past. The reason I did that was because I had major triggers in my teenage and college years that would cause me to behave irrationally because that's what triggers do. <laughs> and basically, oh, yes. if, if you came up behind me and tapped me on the shoulder, I'd come around with a fist because I was going to hit you because nobody touches me. So I was very upfront to people that I had this trauma and there were certain things that you just shouldn't do so that I did not react badly. So I mm -hmm. was trying to prevent more issues. But in doing that, I also had... Uh, college friend tell me that I got something out of being the victim. Mm. I got very angry, which is the natural reaction when somebody mm -hmm. confronts you about a truth that you're not willing to see. But mm -hmm. I, I sat with that. <laughs> and I sat with that for a good long time. I journaled about it. And what I realized was I was getting something out of playing the victim. What was I getting? I was being left alone. Because when people know you're a victim, what do they do? They leave you alone. They're, they tread water. They they're, walk on eggshells around you. They're very careful what they say. They don't want to trigger you. So you get this completely different personality being dealt with because you're fragile. Now, I wasn't, I don't think I would ever thought of myself as fragile, but other people thought I was fragile. Mm -hmm. 
And so because of that, I was being left alone, which was the one thing I wanted others to do was leave me alone. If Mm -hmm. I came to you and I wanted to be your friend and all of that was one thing, but you know, strangers coming up to me, I was not happy with. So I figured out there had to be a better way for me to communicate to people that I wanted to be left alone. Mm -hmm. So that day I went from being a victim and chose to become a survivor. And in doing that, there's two things that occurred. When you have a major mindset shift like that, and you, you become responsible for your choices. So from that day forward, I had to become responsible for what I chose to do, my whatever issues ro- arose because of the choices I make was my fault, not my traumas, not my mother's, not the three men that raped me. I can't continue blaming them for what's happening in my present if I made choices that cause the current circumstances. If I did that, I'm giving them control. So that's the second thing that happened was I became empowered that from this day forward, all my choices were mine to make. I was then now in complete control of how my future trajectory went. And that empowerment is something that a lot of trauma survivors take decades to find. Mm -hmm. And I found it early on that empowerment Mm -hmm. aspect of it. But it also because of the responsibility, I had to shed the blame. And, you know, and that's something that a lot of trauma survivors don't want to do. They don't want to take responsibility for their lives. And they, they stay trapped in the blame, they stay trapped in the um, idea that they have no control over their lives, because they never become empowered. Mm -hmm. I think a really big piece of that as well is a lot of people think that if they were to forgive, if they were to let it go, that they're actually condoning the behavior and they're, they're making it okay. And that's not the case at all. I totally relate to, you know, being molested as a child. I was three years old the first time that it happened to me and it changes you. Mm -hmm. It does change you. And, you know, my husband, bless his heart, he will call me out if I'm acting like a victim and he will say, I think a really big piece of that as well is a lot of people think that if they were to forgive, if they were to let it go, that they're actually condoning the behavior and they're, they're making it okay. And that's not the case at all. Hey, like what's going on over there? You're kind of acting like the V word right now. And I'm like, (laughs) Oh, am I? And then I like, you know, it's usually upsetting Mm -hmm. because I don't like to feel or think that I'm operating from that place, but sometimes I am. And as you mentioned, triggers are not something that you don't know it's a trigger until it happens, until someone pulls it or presses it. And it was interesting because he had said to me one day, he says, I wish you could just tell me what your triggers were. So I knew, and I wouldn't have to, you know, I wouldn't have to pull them or poke them. And I'm like, that's the problem. I don't know that they're a trigger until they, until someone pulls it or pushes it. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, can you speak a little bit more about triggers and working through that? Triggers are those things that the ego uses to keep us trapped in the past. So therefore, it's not something that we can say, oh, this is a trigger, this is a trigger, this is a trigger. We, we really don't know because until we have another experience and 
something jars the memory of the ego and the ego remembers all kinds of things. It has a very, very strong memory. And it's interesting. There's actually scientific studies that show that the negative aspects of our lives gets imprinted on our memories much stronger than the positive ones um, because there's that emotional angst to it. So we need to learn how to record over those memories. We need to learn how to um, record over the tapes that play in our head, something that's a more positive statement. I'm not saying you're lying. I'm saying you reframe it into something that is more serving for your present moment yeah. versus something that, you know, my mother used to always tell me that I was never a survivor. I was going to die in the woods if I was dropped out there, that I, that I was not a survivor of any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. I'm still here. So obviously yeah. I am. Yeah. And, and, and interestingly <laughs> enough, those triggers, when they occur, we don't necessarily realize that somebody else may have to point it out to us. But the yeah. way we can, when we become aware of how we are responding or reacting to life, mm -hmm. are we responding out of love or reacting out of fear? When you feel fearful, and you did something, you took action upon that fear, that's a really good clue that that's that something triggered you. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily all trauma causes triggers or life in general doesn't cause triggers. There are all kinds of things that, you know, cause us angst at some point. But being able to understand what those are and learning how to, all right, this person made a comment, told me that, you know, I wasn't good at this. I argued back. Why did I argue back? What was I, what was I defending? Yeah. I know more than he knows on that subject. Obviously, you know, me defending my expertise isn't something I need to do because I'm above him in the company. So, you know, <laughs> there, mm -hmm. whatever, why, it is. Why, yeah. yeah, whatever, whatever, why are we defending our position? When we look at why we're being defensive, that's part of the things that you need to become aware of and what could be triggering you understanding our mindset and overcoming those places that, you know, are soft spots for us. I think that's very interesting way to put it because when I think about triggers, I actually think of them in the opposite way. I think of them as an opportunity for me to heal. So I'm like, okay, I'm being triggered by something like what is, you know, same process. Like, what is it that's triggering me? What am I trying to defend? What am I hiding from? What am I running away from? What am I trying not to deal with right now? And then what can I do to make it better? What can I do to heal that part of myself and move forward? Because like you said, triggers are not just based on trauma. They are, mm -hmm. sometimes it's just little things that have happened here and there and everywhere. And you're just like, what the heck? This person is challenging my intelligence. Why is this person making me feel inferior? Why is this, you know, and it's when you're looking at it from a place of why is this person doing that to me? That is slightly assuming that victim mentality when you're thinking, oh, these things are happening to me when they're happening around you. And you're, like you said, either reacting or responding. I think that's a beautiful way to encapsulate, you know, which direction you need to be going when you're experiencing those quote unquote triggers. For many people, what they don't realize is we, we always are responding or reacting to life. Mm -hmm. Whatever's happening, we're reacting or responding. And if we're conscious, if we are aware is when we respond. 
When we're mm-hmm. unconscious, we react. And that comes out of a place of fear because that means the egoic mind is the one doing the reacting because mm-hmm. the ego is fast. It takes a moment for us to respond because we have to get quiet for a split second. We have to get quiet and listen to the whispers of our soul because our soul will always give us the right direction, the right way to respond versus the initial reaction that the ego uses, which is going to be about defending ourselves, is going to be about protecting ourselves. Is It's about us versus when we respond, we normally are responding from a place of love, which means it's about the other person. Mm-hmm. So if, if I'm being, if somebody is challenging me in any way, it's not about me. It's about them. They're mm-hmm. the ones that's having the issue and are trying to be little me to pull themselves up. They are having an egoic reaction to whatever it is that's happening. And mm-hmm. if I'm aware of that, then I know it's not about me. 99.9% of all our interactions isn't about us. It's about the other person. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really great way to look at it as well, because people often feel the need when they have something that they have not processed, something they haven't digested or something that they're uncomfortable with. They, they, it's like, they feel a need to attack or belittle or, you know, subdue the person that's in front of them. And I think it's a really interesting coping mechanism as well, because when, when people get reactive, with me, like, I don't know, say, you know, say I talk about something and it's, it's triggering for them or it's uncomfortable for them. I always like to ask them, I'm like, what about this is making you so uncomfortable? I'm genuinely curious because Mm -hmm. I would like to know if it's something that, you know, like if it, was it something I said, was it something I did? And, you know, part of that is me wanting to assume the blame, which is not also very helpful all the time. But I also want to know, so that way, not, not that I can promote the victim mindset and the person that I'm communicating with, but so I can understand better how to support them through it. Because when someone is stuck in that victim mentality, you'll know, you'll know they're constantly Correct. pointing the finger, not looking at how many fingers are pointing back at them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, they just want to cast the blame on someone else, because if you can put the blame on someone else, you can take your responsibility out of it and make it about them doing it to you, it being, a, you know, happening to you rather than you saying, you know what, it's time for me to address this. I, I've been ignoring this trauma from my childhood. I've been ignoring this pain from, you know, my mom passing or whatever, whatever the, the subject is. But I'm just curious, like, can you speak a little bit more about how fear really likes to just sort of like sneak in there? Like, is that what is the underlying driving force when people are starting to react? It is. Absolutely. It is. Again, I believe there's only two emotions, love and fear and love comes out in all different kinds of way, compassion and kindness and sincerity. Um, and as well as fear comes out as anger, depression, anxiety, all of that comes out in different ways, blame, um, excuses. That's all fear-based. So mm-hmm. when, when you start blaming anything, you're now reacting out of a place of fear. If, however, you take responsibility, and I'm not saying responsibility for whatever the situation is, responsibility for how you responded or reacted, how, how you are you know, moving forward in this situation, what steps you took to get into this situation. If you're mm-hmm. taking responsibility for your part, that's all I'm 
anybody ever is supposed to do is take responsibility for their part. They are, I am not to blame for the entire situation. I may be to blame for the steps I've taken to get us here. And if it's a bad situation or a good situation, but the reality is the situation is what it is. And our, the best thing we, any of us can do is take responsibility for our part, apologize for any words we said that we shouldn't have said because we reacted instead of responded. Mm-hmm. And then look at, okay, what is way, a way that we can take this and make something better out of it? Mm-hmm. And when we look at fear and understand that it is what the ego lives off of, it thrives in a fearful environment. And if you live in the past and you are tied to your past, then you are depressed. And if you are living in the future, always looking to the future, most likely you are anxious, which is fear of the future. The only time you can have peace is in the here and now. In this present moment is where peace is found. And when you look at people and they are always saying, I I just want to be happy, I just want to be peaceful. They're not living in the present moment because that's the only place happiness and peace can exist. And what other thing most people don't realize is that happiness, joy, and peace all rise from within ourselves. And all of us have exactly what we need to be happy, joyful, and peaceful. But again, it goes back to, you have to get quiet. You have to accept yourself as you are and love yourself as you are in order for us to get to a place where we can live in the present moment and be joyful and peaceful. And most people, especially those that have suffered trauma, don't like the present moment because in the present moment, we have to deal with ourselves. Uh So I spent several decades, I went from one place to the complete opposite. So I spent one full decade depressed after the trauma and living in the past and stuck in the past. And then when I became a survivor, I went immediately to the opposite end and spent a year or 10 years in anxiety mode um, on medication, all kinds of wonderful things to try to deal, you know, full-blown panic attacks. I was holding my breath till I passed out. So the panic attack would subside. I mean, and, and then I ended up with head injuries from falling (laughs) in public places. So, you know, you, I went from one to the other, obviously I understand both being depressed and being anxious. And I know Mm -hmm. the, you know, what we think is good about each one, what we think is bad, what our egos says is good about each one, what's bad about each one. Neither of them worked. Mm-hmm. Neither of them helped me transcend the fear. Neither of them actually helped me cope with life in, a, in any positive way. So after 20 years, I, I had to figure out something else. And uh, st- I started looking for ways to be in the present moment. I also went, you know, one of the things that we do when we don't want to deal with ourselves is we get busy. Mm-hmm. And, and we guise it. So I guised it as I was a volunteer in, in the Boy Scouts of America. I was a Cub Scout den mother and I was committee chair. And then I became day camp director. I did all this stuff. I was a stay at home mom so I could do all this stuff. But what it was, was me not dealing with myself. I was doing all this other stuff. I was staying way busy. And then I switched that to, I became the leader of a biker gang came very busy in the biker gang, was leading all the, planning all the rides, planning all these events, becoming um, 
on the district staff to um, promote different things. So I got busy instead of ultimately dealing with myself. And when I got quiet and started finally dealing with myself, not only did healing come, but it came very, very quickly. Because looking back, I could see I've already dealt with that. I've already dealt with this in this situation. And the healing comes together rather quickly. One of the first steps in that healing process, which I did a long time ago, was forgive. And you briefly touched on forgiveness. And forgiveness is about showing our self-love to ourselves. It's about releasing our attachment to the offender mm -hmm. and saying to ourselves, we are more important to us than the offender is. So I'm more important to me than my mother was to me. Mm -hmm. And all of us should be more important to ourselves than our offender, period. We just mm -hmm. should be. And yet, <laughs> yet if we don't forgive, we're telling ourselves, we're telling our egoic mind that they are more important than we are. Mm -hmm. and think about that. Why are they more important than yourself? And if you think on that, you'll finally get to the place where, oh, I understand now why I have to forgive. It's not a matter of me condoning anything. It's the, forgiveness is never about condoning. Forgiveness is about us releasing our attachment to that person and that pain that we no longer say, that is the number one thing about me. Mm -hmm. because you're there's way free. correct you're setting yourself free and when we realize that and start moving through that forgiveness process and it may take time you know it, I don't think I forgave my mother overnight or anything it, it came in steps I could forgive her for being an alcoholic I for, could forgive her about allowing the three men to rape me but it, it was a process there were bits and pieces that, and you have to learn to put those personal boundaries in place especially if you like me have to deal with your, the person that has traumatized you mm -hmm. and figuring out how to allow them into your lives. My, one of the biggest things with personal boundaries for me and my mother was I was raised to honor thy mother and thy father. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't figure out from an 11 year old perspective all the way up until I was, I was about 25 when I finally had someone from the church tell me just because they're your mother or your father doesn't mean they're allowed to hurt you. Exactly. <gasps> that yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah. <laughs> Where was but, that teaching when I was 11 years old? Dang exa it. Exactly. And that's part of, and society, society is very much, you know, you have to listen to your elders, you know, all of that. So mm -hmm. at, there is a place where we need to teach our children. It doesn't matter who they are. They don't have a right to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's mom or dad or your grandparents, nobody is, has the permission to hurt you. Spanking or anything like that is completely different. When you are trying to discipline a child, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking yeah. about is, you know, traumatic harm, degrading language, all of those things that, that get psychically put into a child's head. Mm -hmm. You know, shame. my mother, yeah. yeah, shame, blame, all those things. My, you know, my, my mother blamed me for her being an alcoholic when I was six years old. Wow. She was an alcoholic before I was born. So obviously mm -hmm. it wasn't my fault, but a six-year-old yeah. doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you need to be able to watch your language that you use with your children, because what you, as you know, parents, your, what your parents say to you lingers. 
mm-hmm. not just a little bit, but <laughs> decades, centuries, yeah. you know, they lingers a long time. So watch what you say to your kids, especially when you are reacting to them versus responding to them. Mm-hmm. Wow. This has been so amazing connecting with you and hearing this part, this last part in particular for me has been really powerful because I recognized a long time ago that my parents were doing the best that they could with what they had, but they also didn't address the things they needed to address in order to become better parents. I mm-hmm. think they just thought with time, with more kids, you know, eventually it would get better. Oh, it gets easier. It gets easier. Uh, no, <laughs> it, you have more children, more minds, more you know, hungry tummies that you have to worry about. There's a lot more responsibility there. And I think putting that onus back onto the parents and forgiving the parents, you know, honoring my mother and father, yes, but also knowing that, yes, they, they also need to take the time to work through their issues, their problems, mm-hmm. their childhood traumas, and make it so that they're, up, again, responding rather than reacting. And we're seeing that rampantly in our society right now. There's a lot of trauma that is being uprooted and there's also a lot of trauma that's being caused. So I think it's really a powerful reminder to remind parents to, hey, you know, are you responding? Are you reacting? Where, where would you like to go with this? Uh, last month I did a show. So this would have been a show in June, June, end of May, beginning of June. Um, of 2021, where I specifically spoke to general um, generational patterns of behavior and how to break them and understanding that just because your parents did it and it harmed you, make sure you're not doing it and harming your children. You are responsible to break that pattern of behavior so your children don't have to suffer. And I go into some specific details of different things that we don't realize are generational. You know, Mm -hmm. my grandmother was very specific at how she talked about African-American populations and she would whisper when she talked about them. So, cause she didn't want to offend anybody, but at the same time, she didn't have understand the language, you know, she was born in 1916. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So Very very different time. So she wasn't sure how to address things. So she was just very quiet about how she did it. Um, versus my dad who, you know, was in the army and because of being exposed to multicultures in the army. And when you, when you have anybody that's been in the armed forces, the um, cultural differences is a very unique thing that happens in the military. And so their points of view, when you have ex-military personnel, they don't think about race in a way that the rest, you know, those of us who have not been exposed to, or, you know, people don't, when they look at me, they're not necessarily think I'm Native American. They're not quite sure what I am. So they don't say anything. Mm-hmm. And we don't go around asking, what is your family background? We don't do that anymore because we don't want to, you know, step on social, you know, abnormal. Um, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and we want to be inclusive. And at the same time, we're dismissing long-term heritages. And those of us that there are, there is positive things about being Native American. There's negative things about being Native American. And I think all of us have those things about whoever our being is. Um, and what most of us don't realize is that we're at this stage of the game, we're all mutts. 
And if we, and I think everybody should do uh, 23andMe DNA testing because you will find out how much of a mutt you really are. And if you think that you are, you know, my husband thought for sure, you know, was told he was Polish. There's not an ounce of Polish blood in him. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so funny. So, you know, and, and that's it. Or you find out <sighs> there, there's French in him, but where did that come from? Because, you know, mm-hmm. there's blood, like you have to look at these bloodlines. And the reality is people are people and they just want to be loved. Yep. And if all we do every day is get up and love everybody around us, the world will become a better place. And as long as we understand that we are all worthy just as we are and accept one another just as we are, flaws and all, because your flaws may not be the same as my flaws, which means that we may complement one another. We may balance each other out. And that's the whole purpose of humanity and the whole purpose of society is that we're to balance each other out. What I'm good at, you may not be good at, but I can help you with that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, Terry, it has been an absolute pleasure. And as we come to a close, I would love to invite you to share more about your book. Where can people connect with you? Where can they find your book? And do you have any final words of wisdom? So you can find me at terrykozlowski.com. My book, Raven Transcending Fear, is available on Amazon, or you could go to raventranscendingfear.com. And my podcast is soulsolutionspodcast.com. And again, I have episodes uh, come out every week. Um, so I hope everybody have, has an opportunity to connect with me. If your audience would like, I can give them, uh, I'll give you a link to put in the show notes to give them um, a free ebook on um how to, um, the six steps to transcend their fears and overcoming their limiting beliefs. So I'll be happy to give that to you. Um, it's a prelude to the book, Raven Transcending Fear. And as far as closing words are concerned, Rochelle, it's been a joy. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you and your audience and everybody. I want them to know that they are worthy exactly the way they are and that they are meant to be on this planet at this time to help humanity come to peace and love one another. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to connecting with you again. Great. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe. 